welcome to The Near Memo, a weekly conversation about search, social, and commerce. What happened, why it matters, and the implications for local. Okay, welcome. Episode 18. Boom! Mike, David, and Greg. <laughs> Here we are. Get, let's get right into it. So the three, three items, we, we had a lot of choices this week. Um, we're talking about three things. Uh, I'm going to start with the discussion of the piece that came out today, which would be Friday if you're listening to this in the future. Uh, <laughs> in the, in the, the Washington Post, uh, Laura Seidel wrote a piece on fake reviews and the pervasiveness of the problem. She's just focused on the healthcare field. But it's merely, it's just a representative example of a much, much wider problem. We've talked a lot about fake reviews, review fraud. And uh, Mike was interviewed extensively in the piece. I was interviewed extensively, but did not appear in the piece, for which I'm bitter. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, anyway, um, uh, so... Yeah, I was wondering, though, if you thought I should go back and no, ask her for don't, a link. No, don't ask her for a link. <laughs> when people people used to ask me for links, I would just smile and delete the email. <laughs> so well, at, um, least they, at least they made you smile. That's, that's yeah. more than uh, yeah. yeah. More than so I so, did, so all right. So so the, so the problem is is pretty pervasive. Um, some unpublished overall research that we fielded, um, you know, two thirds of consumers now recognize fake reviews as a problem, and I think I, I forget the precise number, but it was it was about half of that saw it as a big problem. And the way that people are dealing with that is by going to multiple review sites to try and validate the the, the uh, assessment of any given business uh, or hotel or whatever it is. So it's 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 gone from bright locals a uh, couple of year ago couple of years ago survey. Yes, I've seen a fake review. To now, people recognize it as a problem, and all the and articles like this bring it into much more uh, visible relief. And so what we want to talk about is really what are, what are the solutions realistically? I mean, Google claims to be doing a lot. Amazon claims to be doing a lot. All these companies, Trustpilot, TripAdvisor, oh, we're, you know, we have various algorithms and we remove X million fake reviews. And Google was saying it shut down billions of fake listings last year. But, but yet the problem is really, really pervasive and, um, you know, exists in the millions and millions uh, of 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 deceptive reviews, many of which are generated by the business owners themselves through third parties or through friends and family because there's so much at stake. So in that article, they talked a lot about Section 230 and you know whether or not reform of Section 230 would be impactful. And Mike, you had some, some strong ideas about that. So obviously I've been watching and criticizing Google in the review space for many years. And you know, they always make those statements that you said, oh, yeah, we didn't know this was such a big problem or, oh, yes, or we we're addressing it. News. We'll take them or we'll take them down and we'll address it. And we have a new algorithm we think is really good and it's going to fix the problem going forward. And six months later, you know, after the news has died down, it's always it's the yep. same as it always was. And it became clear to me that. And, and I escalated this from local press to regional press to national press. And the same thing happened over and over again. And I realized that Google has no incentive to work on this problem. None. Zero. Because there's no harm to them when their platform is abused for this purpose. There is no financial repercussions. There's no social repercussions. They figured out a PR strategy that they're like Teflon in the matter. They, oh, it's not us. It's the, Or we're dealing you know, with such scale that we're doing the best we can. 
or we're doing great at touch scale. Right. It's only one half of 1% or whatever bullshit number right. they pull up. And I realized in doing all that, that the only way to change this was from a societal point of view to, to look at every part of that chain and either make parts of it illegal, which they're not. It's not illegal to have a fake business listing right now, for example, as far as I can tell. And if it is illegal, it might be well, illegal under some sort it's, of civil. It's, it's, so it's so your illusory laptop repair uh, pilot is still going strong then, Mike. <laughs> It is going strong. Yes, I once created a fake Google listing called Illusory Laptop Repair, and it still gets calls, uh, which I forward to my brother. But And does he, in it, fact, repair laptops? And then he it's, does. It's, oh, the laptops it's not an illusion, then. It's a real listing. That's true. But there's problems at every part in the chain, right, where the business is incentivized to buy fake reviews, where the marketing agency working for them is incentivized to buy fake reviews. There's companies that have been set up, I think, largely criminal, but that, are, that sell fake reviews. There's no penalties for them. They're international. And there's no penalties at Google. Now, I've been taking the approach from Google's point of view. And to me, the, the blanket carte blanche that they're given is through Section 230, which absolves them of any right. responsibility for use of their platform. It's a content moderation issue. And Right. And, and my contention would be that if they are held to a slightly higher after the fact standard, where they are expected to respond quickly to accusations of fake reviews, where they are expected to analyze them quickly and respond honestly to people who report them, then that would drive their costs up after the fact without changing their protection from liability, but force them to then write better algorithms so that they aren't dealing with so many calls. Well, the, about the, fake the, the problem, so this, the, so the FTC put out a little guide, which, <laughs> which I think you originally pointed out to me. Um, uh, yes. about how, uh, for consumers, about how to evaluate online reviews. And it was like the weakest thing ever. Not only <laughs> is no one going to see it, it's just, it's just kind of, you know, no duh, not helpful, uh, information. And so, and the Supreme Court sort of gutted the FTC's power to impose monetary damages or penalties, uh, on companies, uh, as, as kind of regulatory overreach. So, so now they only have kind of injunctive capabilities, meaning they could stop the behavior going forward, but they can't do anything to raise the costs, as you're suggesting. So, you know, there's no mechanism here unless Congress does something to to re in amending 230. I mean, they so have I to give the the, the the power of uh, financial penalties back to the FTC. Well, that and and put more post after the fact moderation responsibility that you know that these things have to be responded to in a reasonable time frame with transparency and they have to like right now if if somebody puts a fake review up that's libelous google has no obligation under current law to even take yeah. it down well I mean, the, how so the states could, like as 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 what as happened with privacy the states could step in and do something under consumer fraud right or or whatever yes and the FTC has recently announced that they're partnering with states on that issue, but that's just a very onerous and difficult. And again, the FTC's job is mostly the civil, don't do it again. And if there is a fine, it's a minor fine. If they could do a fine, well, they can't, but it's like, it's not enough. So there needs to be a policy change that, that starts at the top with Google and works its way all the way down that makes it explicitly illegal. Well, as you say, Google is not going to do this on its own. So, so let me, let me just sort of shift slightly. But well, by the way, Yelp has less review fraud than Google and Yelp could take that information and market aggressively to consumers, which might put some pressure on Google 
to, you know, you can't trust Google. You can't trust what you read on Google because, you know, there's all this fraud that that you can't really be, trust what you read, what you read on Yelp either, because they filter out so many legitimate. Well, that's a different discussion, but there is a lower statistical incidence of of fake reviews on Yelp. But that's a slightly different discussion. So let me segue uh, into into something that's going to get into your 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 discussion, Mike, which is um, which is the idea of trust and credibility in in online content. So reviews, if reviews are perceived to be less and less credible, and they certainly are in my world, um, you know, I'm increasingly turning to expert reviews and turning away from consumer reviews around products. Um, and and I find myself more and more dissatisfied with search results in a lot of situations, like just third parties promoting themselves and crap content. Um, you know, you, you, you ha found an item that is an interesting alternative to the existing sort of treatment of search results. Why don't you talk about that? So Google, as we know at IO, they announced several major AI initiatives, MUM, which is a language analysis initiative to replace BERT, which is already very sophisticated, but it looks at words in context so it understands more about the sentence. They talked about Lambda D, I think it's called, which is a AI to actually complete sentences based on starting words and, and uh, categorical sort of definitions. So kind of like GPT-3 AI, you can actually, it actually writes documents for you. That's their Lambda product. And they talked about their image ability to understand the content in images, which I know from my personal experience has been growing exponentially over the last several years. And this, so there's those three sort of foundational things. And then I, I, I found this paper called Rethinking Search, Making Experts Out of Dilettantes that was written by four Googlers uh, for the ARXIV conference. And they discuss how there's a need that, that their goals require uh, both a rethinking of how information is organized top to bottom using these three tools, getting rid of the knowledge graph, which they, they not getting rid of it, but, but they perceive the knowledge graph as being very limited to only expose limited number of facts. And they call that the dilettante. And so their goal is to create a new indexing system that removes this whole idea of, uh, of traditional retrieval sort of uh, storage, retrieval, ranking, picking out the right piece to answer the question into a, a model-based sort of storage using these three elements to literally, I mean, the best way I can summarize this is you ask a question, they, or drop in an image or drop in an image and a question, they can then write a detailed Wikipedia-like response with references. So they can show you where all their knowledge came from, why they're saying it, and what, and uh, basically write an ex, uh, a full exposition as an answer, include images uh, the, and compare them. So they gave the example at IO that you used certain shoes to climb Mount Hood. Would they be good enough to climb Mount Fuji? Well, they have to understand what Mount Hood is, what Mount Fuji is, and then extrapolate the type of hiking conditions based on things they've read in any language and then write a new answer to it. It's pretty ambitious. And as you pointed out, could deal with local stuff. Well, it could, it could deal with a lot of things. I mean, it remains to be seen, but it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, they're doing a bit of that with the snippets now where you, you get a highlight on the page where the snippet is extracted right. from. So it's interesting that they can match. 
Pure dilettante. Yes. Dil- dilettante is not a positive uh, word, by the way, in my in, in my I mind. know that. So it isn't so in it the papers either. I can't imagine the people on li- local liking being called. Well, dilettante. it's 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 like, it's, you know. it's not. A, it doesn't inspire confidence. But but as you pointed out, I think uh, before we we started today that there was a we, we were talking about duplex and um, you know one of the other things that we're not really talking about is Google's test in Italy to use. Uh, Google, the Google Assistant and Google Duplex to solicit business information as a way to set up uh, GMV profiles as opposed to the current way, which is manually claim and then populate your profile. And, um, you know, you were talking about the time lag between the introduction of that technology, you know, several years ago and the... 2018. Yeah, so the implementation, so three three years. So this this, um, model that you're describing could be many years away if it ever appears. Correct, but it it reflects several things, and we we one we can see the building blocks happening, and they're using sort of the building blocks like we're seeing in the image analysis piece, m- dramatically improved understanding. I've recently gotten access to their API, and so just fascinating what they see in images: all the entities, their ability to label it, their ability to extract what are called semantic triplets from an image. So. Uh, uh, Man, woman, uh, camera, TV, that kind of triplet. Yes, exactly. Precisely. Kind of, yeah. In fact, those are the, those tr- are the primary tr- categories into which everything is organized. <laughs> I see. But so they can put these, they can take an image and literally extract uh, logic that they can then query about the image. And that's fascinating. So we're seeing parts of this and we know their ambition is massive. Well, imagine, imagine and though, so think I, about this in the context of antitrust. Let's, we don't know what this ultimately will look like. But what if the whole world and all the content of the documents and, and websites and underlying uh, data is then just becomes a source material for Google's own proprietary presentation of that content? I mean, that's even more egregious, so, if I can use that word, than what we're dealing with today, the, the, the mean, zero-click stuff. Yeah, well, that's what I was I'd say a couple – I mean, Google's been moving in this direction with uh, zero-click results, and this is just sort of – potentially a smarter way to compile those results. Um, so, and it fits in with their mission to organize and make accessible all of the world's information. So, I mean, to me, this is what they've been trying to do since they started and they've finally figured out a technical way that they might be able to achieve it. Um, so I don't see, like, this doesn't come as a surprise to me uh, necessarily, um, but I do think there's a certain point at which they're, um, if they push it too far, publishers are going are going to opt out of Google because there's literally no there's no value if you're not getting any click throughs from Google uh, to to make your content accessible to them. So I think it could have a you know if they push it too far, it could have a, a significant downside. Not to say I don't think it should be regulated out of existence uh, <laughs> if we get to that point, but um, I do think that there's there might be some uh, unintended consequences from from Google's standpoint. It's, it's, it's also interesting to think about in terms of like non-screen uh, experiences like, you know, audio or smart glasses or whatever else may be forthcoming, the car, you know, that this this mechanism uh, might be well suited to those other kinds of the, the smart speaker, you know, those other kinds of uh, treatments or, or formats as well. Um, there's no easy segue into the into the third item, except um, uh, 
to say that Google is a giant regulation. Yes, yes. Google is a giant company, and so is Amazon. So is Amazon. Yeah, and so uh, so. yeah. So go ahead. I just wanted to highlight uh, Miriam Ellis's excellent article that she uh, wrote for us this week, which was really a sort of a conversation that she had uh, with the owner of Raven Bookstore, uh, Danny Kane, in Lawrence, Kansas, and um, just a really interesting piece about how he has sort of oriented his entire business around exposing the societal ills that Amazon imposes on all of us. Um, and I, I thought I found it interesting for a couple of reasons. The first was the anecdote uh, that he shared, w- which sort of, I don't know, pushed him over the edge uh, to some degree of doing this with his business, where a customer came in and said, oh, I can get this, this book that you're selling for $26.99. I can get it for $15 on Amazon, sort of asking him to sort of match the price. And he's like, that's below our cost. There's no way I can do that. And so the first thing I thought, thought of was, you know, our... I don't know to the extent that it's possible. I know that Apple is very uh, restrictive about what you can sell an Apple product for because it's the same price on Amazon, Best Buy, and the Apple Store. Um, and so I'm wondering, specifically in the case of books, why this hasn't, um, why publishers haven't sort of banded together to um, enforce the same price uh, at a minimum across Amazon and, and their local outlets. Um, there's still the issue of you know same-day delivery and all these things that Amazon can do that that Raven Bookstore uh, probably will will never be able to do. And also e-books, also e-books. And and e-books as well. Um, But you could, again, you could enforce the same price for an e-book as you do for a print print book if you're the the copyright holder. So, So I don't know if you remember that Apple tried to help the publishers establish baseline pricing and they were sued by Amazon for antitrust. And, and Amazon won that case. So that's but publishers should be able to decide what they, they should be able to fix their prices on all platforms, just the same way Apple does or Sony or any right. other manufacturer. Well, you, you, if, you, if, they all, if they all agree in principle to that policy, that isn't necessarily, uh, you know, whatever it would be, uh, uh, price fixing. It's, it's just the, you know, they're, they're just saying, we're, we're not going to allow they're, our They're our fixing their own prices. Right, yeah, exactly. It's not a collective uh, thing. So that that struck me as one way that that uh, industries at least could could band together to support local businesses. And then the second thing is, uh, Miriam highlighted a, a number of very specific tactics that Danny is doing um, to foster a sense of community at his local business, um, and I think leverage some of this sort of latent consumer interest in supporting local businesses. I mean, he makes it really tangible, right? He's hosting local events. He's partnering with other local institutions uh, in Lawrence and the surrounding area um, to host festivals. Um, Miriam, highlight- <laughs> Miriam highlighted his uh, store kitties, um, cats that are at his sort of community reading area. Um, so there's just a number of, ex- of experiential things that he is doing that actually give him a competitive advantage over Amazon. And I think that's really the way to build consumer loyalty at the local level um, to the extent that you as a local, I mean, not everyone's going to be able to do this, right? If you're a plumber, I suppose Amazon doesn't yet really provide plumbing services, but um, there may not be this, this, this notion of building community, you know, is sort of not, uh, not applicable to the same extent across multiple industries. But I just thought that Danny has done some really interesting things 
um, to actually play up his competitive advantage over Amazon that they can't possibly replicate. So, I, I agree. It was a really um, interesting and and strong piece that she wrote, and interesting sort of to 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 see those tactical things. You know, it's it's in a way it's kind of a the same thing that a lot of large retailers are dealing with, trying to build better in store experiences as a way to entice customers uh, to to continue to come in. I have some skepticism. I mean, I'm very sympathetic to everything in that article. I have some skepticism about consumer willingness to go any extra distance to support a local businesses. Some people, some, you know, some percentage will, um, but a lot of people will take the path of least resistance, which for them is uh, Amazon. And there was that piece about Amazon Prime, the, the, the Matt Stoller piece in Substack that was talking about how Prime... Um, actually raises prices for consumers because Amazon extracts, you know, they, they do all, all kinds of things in the back end to, to compensate for that. And, but prime is a, is a powerful, it's probably the most successful loyalty program ever. And it's, it's driving enormous value for Amazon. And there's a lot of inertia around it for consumers. And I'm guilty of it too. I mean, I'm getting packages every day from Amazon, even though philosophically I'm in the same boat as a lot of people. I want to support local businesses. I mean, to some extent, there's I mean, businesses, I think, have evolved to understand that certain products can be evaluated. Books is one of those. You need curation. You need display. You need community. And if you enhance and embrace those things, bookstores are now on the increase and have been for about three years. Uh, once B. Dalton went down and uh, Borders went down, it left Barnes & Noble as the only bookstore standing. And they had problems. And an interesting article in the Financial Times where they are using many of these same tactics to recreate the ambiance of a bookstore by relying on employees in the bookstore to add that value uh, at, and to do that at scale. So to do it, they have to trust that employees love books recommend good books, and they have some interesting techniques about how to display them. But their their books lend themselves to that more than, say, uh, laundry detergent or right. true, some other. True commodities, commodity. right? So, I mean, book. Right. And to some extent, in the true commodity area, Amazon's providing a, a service, as is Walmart, getting a commodity to the end user as cheaply as possible. Right. It's just a commodity, right? right? And so they're not evil in doing that. The problem is that they, they have such ambitions and they have to grow into all these other areas that they become detrimental to society at large. Um, well, so. anyway, to end on a positive note, it just seems yes. like, uh, as we always try to do here on the near memo, uh, it, it just seems like. <laughs> Which I continually seem to summarize, well, but I, I. Danny is holding his own. <laughs> and uh, I have actually never been to Lawrence, Kansas, despite driving across I-70 basically every summer as a kid. Um, so I certainly look forward to visiting. It sounds like a great town where he's partnering with a lot of other similarly minded local businesses. And, and there's a real sense of, of camaraderie. And I think that that is a, a, a model that can and should be replicated by local businesses across yeah, the country. So I agree. And, and kudos to Miriam for writing a great Yeah, and, and, and this is something things. we want to do more of. We want to showcase these local businesses and their experiences and learn what's really going on in their world and on the ground and, and uh, tactically. So uh, we look forward to more, more of these pieces. All right. And with that, 
goodbye for this week. Join us next week. Be sure to subscribe to uh, Near Media. And thanks again for listening. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.